everyone, welcome to our podcast. It's called Metacratic, and today is our pilot episode. We're going to be talking about the opioid crisis, and we're going to talk about the ethics of prescribing opioids to individuals who may not necessarily need them. We're going to have a semi-structured discussion, starting with opioid prescription in Ontario specifically. So just to give you a little bit of a background info on it, Ontario has reported a rising proportion of fentanyl-related deaths, and in 2016, there were 867 apparent opioid-related deaths. From 2012 to 2016, the proportion of deaths involving fentanyl specifically increased from 26 to 41%. Although this is just some general info on fentanyl, we also know that pretty much every class of opioids does create a lot of susceptibility to being abused and creating a lot of opportunity to overdose because of this recreation abuse. So together, we're just going to have a discussion on why we think that opioids should not be prescribed, or if they are being prescribed, who specifically needs to monitor it? Is it the government? Is it the individual? Is it the pharmacist? And yeah, we're kind of just going to try and get to the bottom of this together. Yeah, so off that point, uh, the government, shouldn't it also be kind of the responsibility of the physician who's prescribing the medication? Because they might be able to understand how much pain is after a certain operation. <clears throat> and that could be the leading cause of why a lot of overprescription occurs. That's true. I mean, I feel like there's a lot of levels to prescribing medication, right? It should definitely be appropriate to the condition that is trying to be treated. And so the first kind of reference for that is definitely going to be what the doctor is saying that the condition actually is. But then we do need to go through a lot of different levels, as we know, in healthcare to actually get the specific person the specific medication they, they need or slash want. And so when we talk about like, government it's more so what kind of medications are available because of government regulation right you might not have all the opioids that another country might have we might have it a bit more regulated here in canada and then what which one of those can be prescribed by a doctor in ontario and then which one of them can actually be like argued against by a pharmacist who doesn't want anyone to be able to come in and get them for a number of reasons maybe they're expensive too uh, get for that pharmacist or maybe they just are personally against prescribing them so yeah what do you guys think like where should most of the regulation happen as a government at a government level at a pharmacist level or just individually it could be a mix of both pharmaceutical and government regulation because you need the government to control how much they're actually distributing to the different hospitals and the pharmacies and then the pharmacists can, I mean, is it really the pharmacist's responsibility to prescribe a certain amount of the opioids to the patient? It should be what the it's individual... It's a combination of both, both the doctor and the pharmacist, right? Oh, okay. So I thought, and my impression of it was that it was mainly the physician who gives the dosage and the pharmacist is just the one that fulfills the order and organizes everything. You're right for the most part, but I'm definitely, I have the impression that the pharmacist can still alter it. They mm -hmm. seem like this might not be appropriate, right? Okay, so they would have a discussion with the physician about that then. With the pharmacist though, they probably wouldn't have access to the amount of information that the actual physician has. Because mm -hmm. the physician is looking at the patient, and pain's not really something you can qualify in general. Like someone having pain with a back injury it can be very different between someone who's like 35 and someone who's like 60. Even people within the same age bracket or anything, you can't really tell what their pain tolerance is, right? 
Yeah, so I don't. The- I don't really think that a pharmacist is able to do that because they don't really know anything about the patient or their condition. Yeah, and I mean the physician probably doesn't really know that much either because you're asking the patient what their level of pain is, and that's extremely subjective, right? As you said, between a 30-year-old and a 60-year-old, their tolerance of pain. So prescribing opioids just based off of that seems reckless, but there likely isn't a better way to control the amount that's going in. So it looks like either the physicians or the government is intentionally overprescribing to avoid problems. Like I feel like overprescribing may be better than underprescribing the medication for the pain. Would not? So I feel like there's something really interesting going on there because what I feel like the medical system tries to achieve by increasing the amounts of opioids in circulation is reducing the amounts of people who are coming in to the hospital because when you suppress your pain it's really difficult for you to tell if something else is going wrong in your body because the pain pathway is the main way we figure out if there is a problem in our own body right so when a doctor prescribes you a bunch of opioids it's much less likely for you to come back in on your own and i feel like in a country in canada like canada where it's fairly easy for the medical system to get overwhelmed I feel like the reason we do have an opioid problem is because of that exact reason where the prescription of opioids is kind of a secondary tool to prevent the overcrowding of hospitals. But yeah, maybe that's like a very subjective way of looking at it. I would like to hear what you guys have to, like, have to say about that. I think that makes sense. Um, the fact that there's, you know, you have to overprescribe in certain situations so that they're not overcrowded. But is there a way that we can control that indirectly? You know, uh, we have a lot of technology now where it may be not necessary to actually go into the hospital or to a physician's office to get a prescription refilled. Could there be another indirect way, such as, I don't know, through telephones, internet, I don't know, some applications in order to fill out a prescription if necessary? Right. Throughout the pandemic, we had like telehealth, right? Mm-hmm. So you could just call them for your specific physician or even just another physician and they could help you with your personal problems. But... Yeah, it's definitely, I feel like, uh, iffy to say, is it being overprescribed? Is it being prescribed like what it should be like? Or are we actually like prescribing the wrong drugs, right? Because opioids are essentially not preventative, not like they're not treating anything. They're not preventing anything. They're just suppressing symptoms, which most drugs in nature do. But I feel like there has to be a better way of dealing with a lot of these uh, medical cases rather than just relying on opioids to do the job for you yeah it might I mean, be that oh, yeah i'm oh, sorry go ahead i was just gonna say that um it seems like we're prescribing opioids for a lot of conditions that necessarily don't need opioid prescription um very minor surgeries um maybe minimally invasive surgeries so that could also be a big problem with it the fact that we're not that we're just giving it to basically everything I mean, but isn't isn't the bigger problem not just short-term use for surgeries? Isn't it for chronic use? Because a lot of people have chronic pain, and then they just get opioid prescriptions that they just take. And like, as you know, that's what leads to addictions if you have mm-hmm. it for a long time. Like, it, you obviously would definitely get it too in some cases if you use it in acute periods for after surgery. 
But if you're only taking it under supervision of a physician in the hospital after your surgery, you probably wouldn't grow addicted to it. Yeah, what's I'm just curious about the statistics of that. Um, yeah. For acute, definitely they'll give you up. So if you have like, I don't know, a hip replacement surgery or something like that, you'll definitely get prescribed opioids for a short amount of time until the tissue has healed enough so that you can you know not rely on those for the pain and you won't have pain anymore but for chronic pain mm. that will likely be the culprit that's leading to the epidemic that's occurring so i i don't have that information but i would be very curious to know what percentage of opioid prescription is for chronic pain versus acute pain what do you think Saroosh? Well, um, I think in terms of opioid crisis, I don't think there is a much problem with prescribing opioids in medical setting because we do have a very strict gui guidelines about how much and under what circumstances you can prescribe this specific type of opioids. For example, for morphine, um, it is one of the most potent and most like with the highest efficacy painkiller that I think we use in um, clinical setting. And when you have a serious surgery like a hip replacement, there's no, or we have very limited option of other painkillers that can match that. So they use very strict guidelines to use or prescribe this type of uh, opioids. I think the problem is the street use or illegal uh, use of the opioids in the streets that causes in these deaths. Because people just take, uh, abuse the drug that either they have been prescribed to or they just buy it out of the street. Or like the products of op opioids, so it's like heroin. I think the biggest problem is the abuse of opioids rather than just prescribing the opioid. Yeah, that's definitely a big problem. And uh, just going back a little bit, 40% of individuals or older adults have chronic pain. So they're probably gonna be prescribed opioids. And as Sarush said, there's also a lot of abuse potential, not just from prescriptions, but from buying things off the street. So also what age most commonly abuses the opioids and can that be targeted somehow in order to stop the epidemic? And that's interesting because uh, according to the stats from the Canadian government, about two thirds of people on long-term therapy, I'm guessing that means that some, they have some kind of long-term chronic disease that they've been dealing with. 63% almost are prescribed strong opioids, meaning I'm guessing opioids that would uh, kill the entirety of pain, right? Not just dampen it. Mm -hmm. So like oxycodone. Like morphine-based, morphine-based, like, yeah, drugs like oxycodone uh, or codeine or any kind of morphine derivative, I feel like, would do the job here. So I guess our conversation is also kind of, do we need to prescribe strong opioids or can we just go for, like, non-opioid pain medication, like any kind of NSAID, right? Do we think that just dampening the pain would also do the job, but we're going for opioids because it's a safer option when yeah, there are other to, options available? So we have to think about tolerance as well. Uh, if someone has chronic pain, I feel like a lot of the times a doctor will prescribe, like you said, a really strong opioid like oxycodone or something morphine morphine derived but is that the right course of action immediately because if your tolerance develops over a short period of time which it likely will with opioids likely still experience chronic pain after a short while of using the opioids they might not help you as much so is it better to start off with 
weaker analgesics, maybe not even opioids, to see their effect and then slowly build up if the pain gets worse or figure out particular regimens that are specific to individuals so that they can properly control their pain, right? So not everyone's going to be the same. So should we be prescribing the exact same amount of prescriptions and high-strength opioids for every single person? I don't think so. So I agree. I, I feel like we should definitely start off with weaker options. And then if the person keeps on coming in with repeated, well, they don't need to keep on coming in, right? Like we'll pretty much immediately know if the weaker analgesic is not enough to treat their chronic pain, they'll probably be like, yeah, it didn't work, right? It's just going to be like a trial and error kind of thing. Now, ethically, we need to talk about if, like, I think that's a really big point, right? The reason we probably prescribe strong opioids is because we don't want the patient to feel that pain at all. And then ethically, I feel like doctors almost feel inclined to prescribe the strongest medication possible just so the like patient doesn't have to feel that pain anymore right and so if we incrementally increase the schedule uh i feel like there's also some kind of problems we'd get with just increasing dosage over time or i feel like tapering the dosage is also uh another option but i don't really know how that works medically i've just seen that commonly the dose that a patient will receive after like a few years is going to be less than what they were receiving at the start, which is kind of counterintuitive to tolerance. But as, as this kind of brings up, like there are a lot of nuances to prescribing a specific dose of opiate specifically. So I feel like this, this is a lot more complex than, I, mean, than yeah. I personally have thought it is, but yeah, well, I, know, I do agree that starting a weaker, weaker, like non-opioid based medicine would probably be a good option though. I think what they do right now is that they, they give opioids for pain in most cases, but they differentiate between giving a weak opioid and a strong opioid. So I mean, here it says uh, in 2018, 8% of the population is given about a weak opioid, where only 3.2 is given a strong, and then even less amount is given both. So I think they do start out, they don't give non-opioids right now, uh, that are weaker, but they do give weaker opioids. So like they won't just start you out with extremely strong things. They'll start with codeine, uh, some things like that. They're not just going to go straight to uh, morphine and everything like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think a big part of it is as well that when you're giving the patients a lot of opioids, right, weak or strong, um, you're giving the patient a lot of choice in what they do. They don't necessarily have to take, it's not as if, you know, the pain is directly killing them as, you know, the, the potential disease is causing the pain, right? So they don't necessarily have to take the opioids to control the pain if they don't want to. So another really important part of this whole issue is patient education. How much should they be, you can give a recommendation from a physician, but a lot of the times that recommendation may be incorrect for the amount of pain that the person is experiencing because the physician doesn't know how much pain the individual is experiencing. Only the individual right. knows that's, that. That's actually a really good point. And I guess that kind of brings us back to like our initial point of discussion, right? Where there is an individual aspect to this crisis, right? If, as you said, we educate uh, patients as to when they really should take an opioid, right? Which 
in most cases should be pain that is intolerable, right? Not just for very mild pain that is just like not even distressing, but just annoying. It might not be best for that person to use an opioid to treat that. And it is literally up to them, right? The doctor, as he said, can't know that. So like personal education, definitely a big part. And then regulating it by, I don't know, medical professional, definitely another option. I do feel like it, it does have to go up a higher level to the government in terms of like, especially like age range, who can be prescribed strong opioids. Like if you're, I don't know, younger than like, let's say 60, right? Do you really need a strong opioid for your pain? Because your pain tolerance is probably fairly high at that point. Yeah, also the impressionability, right? Being younger may more reckless behavior. So just taking taking the medication whenever you feel that pain is coming. I'm not saying you shouldn't do that, but we have to figure out a way to definitely spread more education on the topic because even us in the health sciences field as students, I don't think that we talk, we discuss the opioid epidemic and certain aspects of it in some situations, but I never feel that we really discuss it a lot. And it's a real big public health crisis. So if if we're not learning too much about it, then I'm just wondering other people who aren't in any relation to the health field at all, how much they really know about the education of taking opioids and things like that, if they ever need it. I mean, I feel like it's a topic that is not discussed that much because people aren't really aware, right? As you mentioned, that it's even something that's going on. Because like when we think about uh, drugs, I feel like most people think that the drug that they're taking is specifically treating a certain condition that they're experiencing, right? Although most of the time it's it's like a universal analgesic that just produces the amount of pain signaling to your brain. And I feel like just the general public doesn't even realize that that is the case. So there is a lot of like uh, edu- educating to do. It's not just about prescribing as, as we we're kind of discussing beforehand as well. And I don't know. How, how would you guys go about like starting an education program on opioids in Canada? So my question with the educating though, because you said that it was also up to the individual when we're talking about prescription at first. It, if, even if you provide education, would that impact how the physician prescribes the drugs? Because let's say, I mean, if someone is addicted to opioids, they're going to want to get the drug no matter what whether that be convincing a physician to give them more than they need or buying it illegally. So if you put too much trust in the individual, then you're running the risk of them just lying and saying that they have more pain than they actually have because we can't quantify their pain. We don't know. So that's a good point. I feel like that it's much harder to change what's occurring right now in the people that are already addicted to the opioids. But I think that eventually we can stop the problem before it occurs. So I don't think that an individual who's not addicted to opioids yet, let's say they just recently diagnosed with um, chronic pain or just they have some acute pain after an operation, they're likely not addicted to opioids in many situations because they haven't been exposed to them. So giving them that education early on can likely prevent it further. That's what I would think. There's definitely an age problem. I'm looking on the Canadian website here. Uh, For Canada, at least, 15 to 24, like age range, is the fastest growing population for hospital care and opioid overdose. 15 to 24. So there's obviously something about 
the developing mind because I mean for males I think your mind develops until you're like 25 or something mm-hmm. there's obviously something there that leads to a greater risk of abusing it um, in terms of education I think one aspect that they can focus on would be to tell them about the side effects of it like you have to frighten the patient about the severe side effects for example do you guys remember when, no I, I i'm serious because do you guys remember when in pharmacology we were um studying the drug abuse potential one of them was the inherent harmfulness of that drug for example if i people uh, the methanol is high it's very available but it would get you blind and like death rate and kills you very quickly so you would not go for it so you can start educating people like around our, the the young age that if you um, can use these opioids or opioids products out of the guidelines which the, your physician have set for you you're gonna have a respiratory distress especially if you combine it with other depressive drugs such as alcohol that's I think that type of fear about you might lose your life and it is very um, common would um, basically unmotivate them to abuse it. So what do you guys think? I definitely yeah, it's fear. It's almost like the cigarette, sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, you go ahead. It's almost like the cigarette packaging, right? I was just going to compare it to. Because like, I feel like before uh, we had like the cigarette packaging that was like smoking kills and then have like a bunch of patients with like, I don't know, like lung cancer and stuff. But like, not a lot of people maybe were aware of the specific consequences of you know, just something like smoking that now we know as a society is bad for you, right? But like with opioids, that might not be initially apparent to to most of the people who take them, right? So this had another point on like method of administration and method of abuse. So we know that most of the opioids are usually just orally administered unless uh, it is for anesthesia. And so when we talk about uh, oral administration through pills, usually uh, the administration that people use colloquially can be very varied from that. So if we kind of regulate how a drug can be ingested, uh, making it essentially more difficult for them to administer it in a manner that creates more euphoria for them, I think Suresh had some insight that he researched about how people kind of use it recreationally, uh, opioids. Well, um, as, as we all know that if you smoke it or inject it, you basically increase the bioavailability of that drug. And so it depends on the specific type of opioids they uh, abuse. It can be in liquid form, which we know as heroin, it's, it's, but it's quite viscous, a little bit more than a liquid. So they inject it in, and that's, as we know, it's 100% bioavailability. But the most common method, um, because obviously you cannot get a syringe that easily, which is clean. So most people smoke it, actually. And they, they, it's funny because they do not just burn it like you use for cigarettes or uh, marijuana. They use a small, or not a small, but like a medium-sized rod, like a metal rod. They would heat the tip of the rod and then they put that on the drug so you make a gentle burn which produces a smoke and then they smoke that and like possibly with one nostril to just inhale the most out of that freak drug and that's that's really interesting so like what are the benefits of 
of inhaling it this way? Is it just greater bioavailability or does it also come with some added side effects that are more beneficial? Do you, do you have any research on that or not? Yeah, so it's funny because when you in, the, most people are aware, it's surprisingly inter, interesting that most people are aware that injecting it is a worse way of doing it. Because first of all, most people don't know how to inject it. You can inject it to like a muscle or vein or it can be subcutaneous. So most people don't risk with that. But smoking is, as we said, way easier to use. So most people go for that. And the benefits for them, for abusers of smoking is that when they inhale the smoke and they keep it in their sinuses, it probably takes them less than 10 seconds to get the effects. It has way more absorption and the high that the experience is, um, it's not longer lasting, it's actually shorter lasting, but it would comes into effect very quickly. For injecting it, because it goes directly to the bloodstream, it's gonna be a way more intense and more rapid high. So it's a basically um, benefit to risk ratio here. They know that injecting it, it's gonna harm them but they also know that it's gonna result in a stronger high, a more lasting high, and more rapid high. Mm -hmm. so and does that increase the dangerousness or danger of the yeah. actual drug? 100% bioavailability means that it is way more easier for you to have a respiratory distress, but also obviously it's gonna be a dirty needle used by multiple individuals at the same time which as we know, is gonna increase the risk of HIV infection, which is very common among heroin users. Now, I do not know that many form of opioids that can be injected other than heroin. So most people go for that when the other opioids fail to satisfy their addiction. So that, that's a really good point, right? The last one you made, not a lot of opioids can be administered in these specific ways. It has to be something that can be administered in that way for it to be that way, right? Obviously. So if you can kind of like modify the opioids that are being made available to the public to only be administered, let's say through like an oral pill, right? I feel like we could avoid a lot of this like abuse because it is not possible to, let's say, uh, smoke it because there is some kind of, I don't know, toxic effect that would happen if you try to do that with a specific drug. So I feel like it's interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I feel like we should probably also regulate like what kinds of drugs we put on the market in terms of abuse potential. Uh, that's that's a good point, but uh, unfortunately, people or basically abusers have a way to pass that, which is they would mix it with other um, uh, drugs, but specifically with other CNS depressive drugs like alcohol. For example, uh, methadone is one of the most common uh, common opioids that they use it. Um, illegally. Um, they can buy it illegally or just get it from a clinic and then abuse it. And sometimes because as we know the methadone euphoria effects is very more limited, they would drink it with alcohol, even though it's a pill, like it is edible. So you would have the first pass effect on it. They would consume it with alcohol. So they would have a synergic effect in their uh, mm -hmm. CNS. So they would still get it high, but with other riskier administration methods. So that just right. seems like you're limiting the therapeutic effects a lot and then raising the negative side effects by a lot. So that could also be a huge problem because that could lead to much higher rates of respiratory depression. Yep. 
So then right. providing the opioids with something like naloxone wouldn't work. Um, yeah, so you, I don't know if, yeah, how would you treat that with the We use naloxone with buprenorphine right now, right? Yes. It's yeah. an antagonist, so it's going to stop them from injecting it because if you take it orally, naloxone is deactivated by the first pass. So do you think it would be a similar thing if you use that with other forms of opioids as well, or do you think it wouldn't be effective? I feel like it would be because methadone... Um, heroin and all those things would uh, affect the same opioid receptors and so i feel like naloxone would be able to antagonize the exact same spots where methadone would attack so theoretically i feel like it should be the same effect they take them with if they take the oral methadone anyways naloxone wouldn't really do anything right and then they would just like sort of said they would drink alcohol or use other cns depressants which would probably and- kill them and also, yeah. we should consider that uh, for uh, Naxalon, which is an antagonist, they can simply just take a larger dose of methadone, so it would outcompete the antagonist for that receptor. And obviously, they can still mix it with alcohol, so they can still surpass that by consuming a very larger dose of methadone, which obviously put them at a higher risk of this uh, respiratory distress. Mm-hmm. But I think if you, like, how do, how do I say this? Like, even if you put any type of regulation, any sort of a new version of that drug, they would find a way to abuse it. Right, like, yeah. People find a way to abuse drugs, right? That's kind of like something we can't avoid. You're really right about that. And so I guess like where that brings our discussion is knowing that people are going to abuse opioids no matter what kind of regulation we put out, like what else is there that we can maybe do rather than like changing what drugs we make available, like educating people is obviously a good point we kind of discussed. Or just to wrap up our discussion, are there any final thoughts on like, okay, so people are going to abuse this no matter what people who want to abuse. So what else could there possibly be that we can do? I mean, I guess just small changes. I don't, there is no one answer to solve the epidemic. By limiting the amount of people that become addicted to these drugs, I believe that the influence of that it has on other people will be reduced. So I, I think it has to be something that we change slowly over time and hopefully eventually education will be high enough, the incidents of death and abuse are going to be lowered to a point where it won't influence new users to become completely dependent on these drugs. So I don't really have any other answer for that in my opinion, but if anyone else has another idea. I think uh, maybe incentivizing returning uh, your prescription of opioids if you no longer need them. Because I know it's not the biggest problem with it, but some of the problem is that uh, people with pain or have undergone surgery will receive a prescription of opioids so that they can deal with the pain until they no longer need them. And then they're supposed to return them to the clinic or dispose them at the indicated area. But some people don't. And they just either throw them out or they keep them. And then that can obviously lead to them being picked up by someone who shouldn't have them or even the person who was prescribed them taking them for longer than they need to just because they want that feeling of euphoria. So maybe if you do some kind of incentive 
to return these prescriptions once they're done, it might slightly lower the incidence of abuse rates, though I don't think it would actually stop it. Mm-hmm. I, I do have a question. I do have a suggestion that might actually work. And I know that it kind of works because uh, there is a similar situation in my country. So one way you can reduce the abuse of opioids is that you would reduce the availability of the illegal drug. And the way you do that, you increase the price of those opioids. So that simply can mean that you would arrest people who mass produce, or you have to obviously locate them, and then you would arrest individuals who produce a huge uh, portion of these drugs in a, in a region or in a street. And because you would reduce the supply, whatever that remains on the streets, their price will be way higher. The same, um, the same situation happened with uh, use of meth in my country. So when they arrested few uh, most active drug dealers, the price of the meth just quadrupled. So less people could afford to abuse that drug. So you would reduce the rate of illegal abuse for that. I think the same thing can happen in Canada. If they were able to find these people who mass produce uh, synthesized opiates, like heroin um, or other forms, they would reduce the usage by simply increasing the price. So that's that's an interesting point. I think we have to, though, separate a little bit. I don't want to go too into depth on this topic because we're wrapping it up, but um, I don't think, are there any clinical uses for meth as the, the street form? Like, are there derivatives of it that are used clinically? Yeah. I mean, meth is a or, stimulant, right? So. Yeah. Actually, I mean, not exactly meth, but um, family of amphetamines. Yes, you would treat yeah. ADHD with them. Or okay. manage, actually. So, I don't know how different they are from this the type of meth that's used on the street versus the ADHD medications, how different they are, but I feel that opioids, their structures are all very similar and they can all lead to some sort of abuse potential. And the relationship between the street environment and the clinical environment, how would they affect each other? So if you reduce the supply on the street by doing what you suggested, would that affect the availability of the drugs that are used at a clinical level? Because if you increase it in the clinical world and reduce it on the street level, eventually the drugs from the clinical world will again leach out into the street world and again it will balance itself out. So it might be difficult in that sense to kind of regulate the control of the drug. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I mean this again kind of brings up the idea that there is just so many nuances to the specific problem which is probably why we have an epidemic going on, which is really difficult to control because we can't really control it, right? So I guess this discussion kind of just sheds a bit more light on specific facets that we can maybe tackle and, you know, at least reduce the, the possibility of abuse. But it's going to be really difficult to control it to the point where there's going to be no abuse, right? Because I don't think that's realistic. So, yeah. Uh, are there any other, like, final thoughts on this topic or can we wrap it up? Yeah, we can wrap it up. I think yep. more good. All right. So this was just like our first pilot episode, and we're just trying things out and seeing how it will go. So I guess to end it, we can kind of just introduce ourselves and then 
yeah, and finish it right there. So my name is Burke, and uh, I'm personally really interested in topics that are about, uh, I'd say, like neuroscience and cancer specifically. And maybe we can talk about some of those things coming up. But yeah, so that's my name and what I'm interested in. I can go. Uh, my name is Stefan, and I just like to say we're all in a health sciences program, as you may have picked up throughout the uh, podcast. Uh, I'm particularly interested in a lot of facets of health sciences, but particularly interested in cardiology and uh, nephrology research. Um, and I'm also interested in certain aspects of ethics and history of healthcare, which we're going to try to discuss throughout this podcast. And I'm, uh, I'm Warren, also a student in Bachelor of Health Sciences. I'm a big fan of cancer research as well as uh, some brain mechanisms, neuron connections, etc. And uh, I think ethics are a pretty interesting thing to talk about. My name is Surush. I'm also a student in the uh, health science program. And I'm also very interested in specifically pharmacology and mechanism of action of specific drugs, either therapeutic or uh, illicit. All right. So that's just an introduction of us. And so uh, first episode, and we hope you enjoyed listening. 